Well, good morning, church family. It's good to be here with you all today. If you have uh, your Bible, turn in those to the 16th chapter of the Gospel of John. That's where we will be today. And we uh, unpack the ministry of the Holy Spirit, our helper, the ministry of the Spirit to the hurting, to the world, and to believers. That's kind of what we're talking about today. But today we read from John chapter 16, and we are slowly but surely working our way through the Gospel of John, and we're in a portion of Scripture called the Upper Room Discourse. And if you remember, in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 16, 4, that section of Scripture that Jesus unfolds to His disciples, you know, almost tragic and shocking news that they will be persecuted for their faith. And then right on the heels of that, Jesus gives them comfort through the Holy Spirit that is to come. And that's where we read today. John chapter 16, verse 5 says this, But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow, deep anguish and sadness has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For I did not go away. If I did not go away, the helper would not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. Concerning sin, because they did not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Amen. Thus says the Lord. Thank you. Um, as we were singing the last song just now, a passage of Scripture came to my mind. And it's usually the first half of this passage that we focus on, but it's really, it's just magnificent all the way through. I'll begin at verse 4, and I'll go to 6, and then I'll jump down to verse 10. You'll recognize it. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And he was pierced through for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see... His offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12 of Isaiah 53. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and will divide the bounty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. It was numbered with transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the reminder, the, the prophecy, the prediction of the arrival of your Son as the payment for our sin. And Lord, the Christmas season is that you came in flesh. 
and dwelt among us. And we saw your glory. And Lord, that you lived a perfect and sinless life to die on the cross to pay for my sin that I could not pay. So that I could be justified, declared innocent before you through the blood of Christ. Lord, I pray that that would never get old. And Lord, I, I pray specifically for this morning. I pray expecting you to work. That the Holy Spirit, which you have given to us, which is understood through John chapter 16, Lord, that it would convict our hearts if we're not, not sure where we stand with you. That we would comfort us in our, if we are hurting. And that would clarify truth in our lives. And we thank you for today. We lift it up in all this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, PJ. Thank you to your team. Thank you to all those that serve. Thank you also to our staff. Uh, they work tirelessly around here. Just thank you for them. Thank you to the elders and deacons. Today I titled my sermon, Relying on the Spirit or Relying on Our Helper. To kind of orient you to the passage, in John chapter 16, Jesus follows the shocking news of persecution. In John chapter 15, he follows the shocking news with words of comfort. That in the midst of the trials to come, in the midst of the persecution to come, his disciples will not be alone, for God is sending a helper called the Holy Spirit. And that is what we are talking about today. But before I go any further, allow me to ask you the question. How many of you have ever known somebody that is just super unreliable? Okay? How many of you have ever had that coworker that just drives you crazy because you ask them to do something and guess what happens? It never seems to get done. Okay? Now what are the emotions of dealing with that person? Okay? If you, if you met with them for lunch, what would you do? You would show up ten out, ten minutes late, late because you knew that they would be late. What are the feelings of dealing with somebody that is always unprepared, always that is lacking, who doesn't do a good job? When you actually need somebody, they're the last person that you probably rely on. But how many of you have had the opposite? How many of you have had a person at work that is super reliable, that if you give them a task to do, that they will do it with excellence? I talk about these days a lot, and there's just so much uh, room for just illustrations and uh, stories to put into sermons. Um, but I, I share often for my Enterprise Rent-A-Car days, and I, Enterprise Rent-A-Car was the first full-time job that I got right out of college. And if you're thinking, just, if you're thinking about getting a job at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, just talk to me first. I'll probably talk you out of it, okay? This was not a great season of my life. I'll just say it that way. I remember I was 22 years old. I, one day in the fall, probably about this time of year, I got to work before the sun had risen, and I got off of work after the sun had set. How many of you have ever experienced that before? It is wildly depressing, okay, all right? But I remember those days, I remember they were just uh, full of just chaos, and there are a host of stories that I could use, but I've had both of those types of employees at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. I had the employees that were, to put it nicely, annoying, okay, Uh, unreliable and flaky, we would say, and then I also had employees that were the complete opposite, that were like a rock, uh, when I worked at Enterprise Renegar, I had this employee, and I'll just say a name, and it, just to save the guilty here. Um, but I had this girl named Candace. And at Enterprise Renegar, we had this slogan that says, what? Pick Enterprise, we'll pick you up. They had the really cheesy commercials, if you know those. 
But Pick Enterprise will pick you up. So I was constantly taking my employees and sending them out of the office to go to dealerships and body shops to pick customers up. And so this was an everyday thing. This is not unusual. So I, as the boss, as the manager of this branch, I basically took a set of keys out and I went up to Candace. And I said, hey, Candace, can you do me a favor? I was polite. I was nice. Can you do me a favor? Can you go pick up a customer at Landers McClarty Dodge? And she goes like this. She goes, And she's right in my face, just like spit all of And I guess what that kind of relationship did from that term on, I'll just say she did not work very much longer for me. Okay, moving on. But then I had the complete opposite side. I had a paraclete, a come-alongside her, and his name was Brent. And Brent was an absolute beast. He had a great attitude. He worked his rear end off. I remember when I went into the fire, he was there with me. On the days where I would have customers 10 deep in the lobby without a rental car in sight, and you wonder how that happens, just talking about it afterwards. But there were days uh, every week that I would have a, a host of customers in my lobby without a car in sight, and all these people were mad and angry, and the phones were just ringing off the hook. And I knew in that moment not to rely on Candace, but to re- rely on Brent. Friends, we as Christians have a Brent. We have somebody that we can rely on. We have someone that guides us in the desert, that comforts us in persecution, that leads us in confusion, that teaches us in the darkness, and that helps us in the midst of the fire. We as Christians have a paraclete, we have a helper, that in the midst of persecution, he will be there. In the midst of sorrow, he will be there. In the midst of not knowing what to do, he will be there. In the midst of not being able to tangibly see our Savior, he will be there. Who is our Brent? Who is our paraclete? Who is our helper? Who is our come-alongsider? It is the character that we see in John chapter 16. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 16. As we've already read, you probably know exactly what I'm going to talk about today. In John 16, we're slowly working our way through the upper room. And our Brent, our paraclete, our helper, is the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is on full display in our passage today. And the Holy Spirit has three different types of relationships. A relationship with hurting, a relationship with the world, and a relationship with believers. So how does the Spirit, the question we're answering today is how does the Spirit's arrival help us? So if you have your Bible, look at it with me, but let us just kind of very quickly remember where we are in the story of the Upper Room Discourse. Now I share, I I don't want to belabor this exercise, I try to do it in a way that's fresh and that kind of is not arduous, so to speak. But I set up the context every week, and I say this quite often, it's because repetition is theological glue. But what I want you to do today is I want you to actually see this passage as if you were one of the disciples, as if you were one of the 11 disciples put on their shoes, so to speak. And where we are in John chapter 16 is at the end of John 14, Jesus and his disciples leave the upper room. They're heading towards the Mount of Olives and they are walking through the streets of Jerusalem, finding their way towards the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. And whereas you walked into the upper room, if you remember that last week in Luke chapter 22, you walked into the upper room with tons of optimism. But now you come in John chapter 16, and how are you feeling? You are sad, you're sorrowful, you're worried. Why? Because no longer are you going to be elevated amongst your countrymen, but now you're 
as Jesus has said in John chapter 15, that you will be persecuted. If you're one of the disciples, your leader, your friend, your savior, the son of God, your guide, the one that you've traveled with is promising that he will go away. And there are actually four different pieces of breaking, shocking news that Jesus has given to his disciples. And I want you to think about breaking news itself. I want you to think about the image that comes on on TV. Okay? So when do we receive breaking news? We receive breaking news when life is just kind of normal. Then all of a sudden something very tragic happens. I think about the day of 9-11. Some, what is that? Some 20 years ago. Wow, that is crazy. What happened that day? The TV came on and said there is breaking news, that there is tragedy amongst our nation. And how that one day changed the course of our nation and Jesus in the upper room forever changed the course of the 11 disciples' lives through four different news stories and news flashes, shocking news stories. Shock number one is that their best friend, their BFF, Judas Iscariot, will betray Jesus. Shocking story number two is that their leader named Peter will deny ever knowing you and ever knowing the Son of God, Jesus. Shocking story number three in the upper room is that Jesus is leaving. But that really shouldn't be all that surprising because he's been telling them all along in the Gospel of John that he is returning to the Father. But then the most shocking story of all, we've already mentioned it, is that Jesus' followers will be persecuted. They are thinking that they are going to be elevated by their countrymen, but rather that they will be persecuted by their countrymen. Because if they persecuted Jesus, they will persecute them. I was, this week I was talking to a friend of mine, and he just sent me this big long text of how the disciples must be feeling at this exact moment. I'm going to share it with you. This is his text. He didn't know I was going to do this, so I won't share his name, but it is very articulate. He says, can you imagine the heaviness and the immensity of weight the disciples felt? When the one that they knew as God in the flesh, the one that is a true friend, the one they have been camping and hiking and traveling, traveling with, laughing and crying with, and witnessing miracle after miracle, healing upon healing, this one named Jesus, who their hearts swell with love and affection for, this one named Jesus says, I am leaving. He, he continues, I can only imagine the devastation in their chest and the energy being sapped from their bodies. So when we pick up in John chapter 16, that is how they feel. They feel sapped. They feel devastated. They feel sorrow. They feel worried. They feel all of the emotions of sadness that you could possibly feel because the Savior of the world is leaving. And not, not only that, but they will be persecuted. But there's good news. There's, there's someone that has come to help them and come to help us in all of the midst of trials of life. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 16, and today we'll unpack verses 5 through 15. And this passage in particular is a uh, continuation of the previous. It is really an expansion of the ministry of the Spirit from verses 26 and 27 of chapter 15. But I want you to notice verse 7, and we'll just introduce the helper, and then we will very quickly define who that is. John chapter 16, verse 7. I'll actually read a couple of different passages. Let me do that for us, just to kind of set the stage on who the Spirit is. John chapter 14, verse 16 says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him, because He abides with you and will be in you. 
Later on in verse 26 of 14. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance that I said to you. And peace I will leave with you through the Holy Spirit. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Chapter 15. Verse 26 says this, When the Helper comes who I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also. The word testify means to matero, means to witness. Is where we get the word martyr. Because you have been with me from the beginning. And then John chapter 16, this is the treatise of the Helper. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Holy Spirit is described perhaps more in the upper room than in any other place in all of the scripture. Now, I'm trying to be mindful of this. If you're new to Christianity or you're trying to figure out kind of what you believe, then let's just define for the sake of simplicity, what is the Holy Spirit? What are we even talking about? The Holy Spirit is a person of God and is God himself. That God, the true God, is triune. He is three in one. That according to the Bible, God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, yet one essence. If you are new to Christianity, the doctrine of the Trinity is truth. Just say it that way. And that God is three in one. Now, if the doctrine of the Trinity confuses you, that there's not three gods, there's not just one God, but there is just one God, but there are three persons in one essence. If this doesn't make sense to you, that's okay. It doesn't, I've said before, it doesn't make sense to me either fully. It is outside our ability to understand. But to some that would under, struggle to understand the very nature of God, that there could be three persons in one God. If you struggle to understand that, and that is causing you friction to believe in Christianity... Think about it the opposite. When I look at the doctrine of the Trinity, when I look here in John chapter 16, when I see the Father mentioned, the Son mentioned, and the Helper mentioned, that there are three persons, yet one essence, it gives me comfort. Why? Worshiping a God that I do not fully understand confirms that we worship the one true God. Let me just say that again. Worshiping a God that we do not fully understand confirms that we worship the one true God. Why? Because we are finite and God is infinite. And if an infinite being can fully understand an infinite being, then infinite, then the infinite is not infinite and is not God. Let me just say that again. It's a tangled web of logic that I wrote today just to confuse myself here. Worshiping a God that I do not fully understand confirms that we worship one true God. Because we are finite and God is infinite. And if a finite being can fully understand an infinite being, then the infinite is not infinite and is not God. So the Spirit of God that we see in John chapter 16 is fully God and is a person of God. And it describes what happens after Jesus' departure. The question we are answering today is how does the Spirit's arrival help them and help us? And if you have your text with you, notice... Verse 5 through 15. You have three different groups of people that, that, that are helped by the Spirit of God. You have one group in 5 through 7, and then you have one group in 8 through 11, and you have another group in 12 through 15. 
After Jesus' departure, how does the Spirit's arrival help us? Notice verse 5. The first group is mentioned. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the helper would not come to you. And if I go, I will send him to you. I want you to notice in your text, verse 5. Why does no one ask Jesus where he is going? It's actually a very good question. Notice, but now I'm going... To him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Why don't they ask? It's because they've already asked twice. In John chapter 13, verse 36, Peter asks him, and then John chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas asks him. And the reason they don't ask him here is because they know, probably they know the answer. At least they're, don't, they're not brave enough at this exact moment to ask a third time. Okay. But they know where Jesus is going, that he is going to die and go back to the Father. I think they are finally getting the hint. They knew, so to speak, that Jesus is returning to the Father, but now they know it. That the Son of God descended from heaven in Luke chapter 2. He lived the sinless life described in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And to be the sufficient payment for our sin described in Romans chapter 3. And the next day, it is Thursday night, friends, before the Friday that he is crucified. The next day, what does he do? He dies on a tree to pay for the sins of the world. And then three days later, he resurrects and goes back to the Father. But then notice verse 6. Again, it's up here if you would like to look at it. It says, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Why are they filled with sorrow? Because I've already mentioned that their leader, their, their savior, their lord, their friend, their guide is leaving, and, but they should not be troubled because Jesus is sending the Spirit. But I want you to notice that word sorrow. It's highlighted up here. That word sorrow is, is, is a little tame for the original language. The word sorrow here means deep, deep, heart-wrenching anguish. Grief beyond measure. They are completely and totally heartbroken that their friend, the one they have followed, is leaving them. They are sorrowful. They are worried. But they should remember that they have the helper, the Holy Spirit, that is coming to comfort them in the midst of the sadness. I'm going to pause. I want you to catch what I'm about to say. Here in John chapter 16, the the disciples are troubled, they are sorrowful, they are worried. But do we ever, do we here today ever get worried or sorrowful or troubled? In the midst of that time, in the midst of your grief, in the midst of being worried, in the midst of being stressed, what should we remember that the Helper has come to give us comfort to the hurting When do we get worried? We get worried over circumstances beyond our control. And when do we get deeply saddened? When something or someone we love is gone. I'll just say it this way. Our church has experienced a lot of passings recently here at Calvary Bible Church. And I would hope that if you're walking in worry, if you're walking in anguish, that you would remember that there are not enough distractions in the world. There is not enough counseling that can fully heal. There are not a band-aid, enough band-aids to fully heal your wounds of grief. But that is why we have the Spirit who is our helper. 
God sees your sorrow, He sees your anguish, and He sent the Spirit to help you and to comfort you in that time. I want you to think about the love of God really quick. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to think about God's love for you. That God's love for you is not only displayed on the cross. His God's love for you is seen, is exampled, is demonstrated, is revealed by the cross himself. But, you know, to most of us, that would be enough. But what has God done now for believers in Jesus Christ? Not only has he paid for my sin in full on the cross, but now he has sent a helper to help me in times of anguish and sorrow. What God does that? Only a God of love. Not only does God's love display that he died for my sin, but that he has given a spirit as our helper to guide us through all seasons of life. I don't know if I fully understand that magnitude of love. It would be enough in my mind just to pay for my sin. But He has come to satisfy me, to comfort me in all times of need. But then notice verse 7 of chapter 16. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. The thought that came to my mind as I was really unpacking this particular section of Scripture was the thought that this, and I want to impress it upon your mind, that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that you are never alone. That you may feel alone, you may feel rejected and forgotten by the world, but you are not forgotten by God. The Holy Spirit has come, and is our helper, is our paraclete. He has come to comfort the hurting and to remind us of the truth of Jesus' return and to guide us into all truths through storms of life. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, no matter what the world tells you, no matter the circumstance you find yourself in life, you have the helper, the Spirit of God that comes and comforts you. The disciples here in John chapter 16 are rightfully worried. They're sorrowful. They know that their Savior is leaving. They know that persecution is coming and that Jesus tells them that he will leave with them the Spirit of God, that it is better that he leaves and the Spirit comes because the Spirit of God is the revealer of truth, the teacher of truth, the guide to truth, and our empowerment to witness. How does the Spirit of God help us? Jesus' promise of the Spirit's arrival, if you have your notes, brings comfort to the troubled or comfort to the hurting. But then notice Jesus then turns from talking to his disciples that are worried and sorrowful in verses 5 through 7, and then he directs his attention. He spotlights the world and the Spirit's role to the world. Verse 8. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin. I want you to notice that word sin, harmartia, is it singular or plural? Convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment, verse 9, concerning sin because they did not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The promise of the Spirit not only brings comfort to the hurting, but also conviction to the world. Conviction of three different things. Conviction of sin, conviction of righteousness, and conviction of judgment. 
I pointed out to you that word sin is a singular or plural. It's, it's singular. Now, some scholars believe that the word sin here is singular. It kind of stands for all sin, kind of lumped underneath one umbrella. But I think particularly here that Jesus is talking about that the Spirit of God convicts the world of one sin. What is the one unforgivable sin? I'm treading on thin ice here, okay? We have this idea that God forgives all sin. But that's not true. Wait a second, what did I just say? He forgives all sins of believers. That's we are justified, our sin is paid in full. But what does he say in verse 9? It says, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. What is the only unforgivable sin? It's echoed in Matthew chapter 22, verse 31, is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. One scholar says that blasphemy against the Spirit is the unforgivable sin, which is the ongoing hardening of your heart against the Holy Spirit, who is trying to lead you to repent of sin and believe in Jesus Christ. Let me just say it this way. The only unforgivable sin in this world is not believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because that is the one sin that separates you eternally from God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, all your sin is forgiven. It's paid for in full. But if you reject Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that that is the one sin that separates you from God forever. It is the one unforgivable sin. If God would forgive that, then guess what would have happened? You, everybody would get to heaven. There would be no sense in us repenting and believing in Jesus Christ. The one unforgivable sin, the one thing that the Spirit of God convicts the world of sin is that they do not believe in me. The Spirit of God came to convict the world to believe in Jesus Christ. Um, I believe this morning that there are people that are in the world that have not believed in Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God has come to convict the world of sin, to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But is that true? Does the Spirit of God really convict us to believe in the Son of God and to receive redemption? I was... uh, I grew up in this church. I've said that many, many times. I started coming here when I was about eight years old, and I thought so to speak, I came to Christ at the age of eight, and I was in a, uh, a five-day club in someone's home in my neighborhood, and, and I, I was told that day that if I prayed this prayer, that I don't think I really prayed, but I was convinced that I prayed it, that if I prayed this prayer, then I would be saved. So at eight years old, I was baptized. I thought I was good to go. But then at age 10, I remember just being haunted, so to speak, being convicted by the Holy Spirit of my sin to believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I remember at 10 years old, and it is amazing that a 10-year-old can understand his need for a Savior, but I remember that week of just conviction, that I remembered my sin, and that there was something that I could not break free from. And I remember the Holy Spirit came and convinced me that I was a sinner and that I had to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. This is what I'm saying. Concerning the world, the Spirit has come to convict us of sin. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, if you think that you're a Christian and you have never been born again, then Jesus has come and he's died and the Spirit has come on earth to convince us of our sin and our need of a Savior.
The Spirit of God convicts the world of sin. It convicts the world of righteousness. Verse 10, it says this. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. What does it mean by righteousness? Dikaiosune is the Greek word there, but the word righteousness means kind of rightness. That the Spirit of God convicts the world of their sin of rejecting Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, the one unforgivable sin, the one sin that separates you from God for eternity. But he also convicts the world of righteousness, in other words, of what is right and what is wrong. One scholar adds this, The Spirit convicts the world of rightness of Jesus Christ by the nature of the Holy Son of God. This is the flip side of verse 9. Not only does the Spirit convict unbelievers of their sin and their need to believe, but also the necessity of having perfect rightness of Christ. When the world's wickedness is compared to his sinless holiness, sin is seen more truly for the wrong that it is. The Spirit convicts the world of their sin, their their righteousness, and judgment. Verse 11. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The Spirit of God convicts the world of judgment because the ruler of the world that they submit to has already been judged. That's what he says. Um, John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, we're not really that interested in, if I'm honest. Because probably most of us here at Calvary Bible Church are probably Christians. So we see 5 through 7 as a wonderful promise of comfort to the hurting and sorrowful, those who are stressed and grieving and in deep anguish. And we kind of set aside verses 8 through 11. But, but if, you're a believer, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've never trusted in Him, the Spirit of God, the fact that you are here today, tells me that the Spirit of God is convicting your heart to believe. You don't come to church to be entertained, at least not here, okay? You come for answers. You came here to be entertained. I'm sorry, this is the wrong place for you to go. But if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is convicting your heart. That is why you are here today. Have you ever just submitted and realized your need for a Savior? Because the one sin that you cannot come back from is rejecting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But then notice his relationship to the hurting, relationship to the world, to those in darkness, and then relationship to believers. Verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. All the things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. When the Spirit comes, he gives comfort to the hurting, he gives conviction to the lost and to the world, and he gives clarity to believers. Verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Listen, if you are trying to discern the will of God, then rely on the spirit. It guides you into all truth. If you're trying to discern what the Lord wants for you in a particular fork in the road in your life, rely on the Spirit. And what happens? That the Spirit of God brings forth the truth of God's Word into your mind to give you the path to walk. Let me just say it this way. 
we have this kind of false idea of the Spirit. He's kind of this mystic figure, kind of like the fog up on Green Mountain on a cold morning, okay? It's just kind of this weird thing that we can't really define. But as I look at the Scripture, and as I look at John chapter 13 through 16, that the Spirit of God takes the Word of God, puts it into our mind, and to give us understanding on how we should then live. Walking by the Spirit is not just some mystical path that we walk that's called spiritual looney tunes, okay? What the Spirit of God does, He helps us remember and He guides us into all truth so that we can walk in the truth. If you want to walk in the Spirit, if you want to know if you are, then is the Spirit of God bringing truth to your mind that you can then apply and then live out? And what is the ultimate sign that we are walking in the Spirit, John chapter 15, that we would testify of Him in the midst of persecution? My point today is this, that Jesus' promise of the Spirit's arrival brings comfort to the trouble and conviction to the world and clarity to believers. And all of this brings glory to the Father, verse 13. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak and will disclose to you. What is to come, and he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. You see my point today. It's not, it's alliterated because I'm a preacher and we have to alliterate everything we ever do. And there can only be three points in a sermon and never four for whatever reason. But I just want to say it this way in a different spin. Whether you are hurting, seeking, or believing, receive the ministry of the Spirit. That is his message today. Whether you are hurting, seeking to understand the truth, or believing already in God, receive the ministry of the Spirit. Before I close, I would like to address three different groups of people. And there are three groups, and you fall into one of these three groups. Group number one are those that are like the disciples at this moment, those who are sorrowful in deep grief in anguish. Some of you have had occurrences in the last couple of months that you never thought you would ever see. Some of you face a diagnosis that you never expected, financial hardships that you did not hope for, aloneness that you never anticipated, and questions that you have never had answers to. If you are like the disciples, if you are in sorrow, then I would encourage you to rely on the Spirit, receive the ministry of His comfort. How do we receive the Spirit of God and His ministry of comfort to the hurting? He brings forth the truth of God's Word. You bring forth the Spirit of God comforts us in all of our affliction through reminding us of the truth of God's Word. Truths like this, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. I will read, those, read it to you in just a second. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 to 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 8. The Spirit of God would use this to comfort you. 
Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come. Nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are suffering, if you need comfort from, the, from God, through the Holy Spirit, if you are hurting, if you are sorrowful, if you're like the disciples in the upper room, that you do not know what the future holds, to receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit and allow Him to bring the truths of His Word to give you comfort and truth and guidance in times of need. Group number two are those who believe in Jesus Christ. If you have been born again, then how do you walk according to the Spirit? You walk according to the Spirit by allowing Him to bring forth the truths of His Word to help you make decisions through life. But where I really want to camp for the rest of the time, and I share this every week, is by conviction. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm, I apologize if this gets old. I hope it does not. But the third group I want to talk to today are those in the world. Those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you are here today and you have never believed the fact that you are even here today, like I said, you didn't come here to be entertained. You came here for answers from God's word. That's why we read it and study it together. If you came here today and you have never been born again, if you have never believed, then the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart to do so. It's like me at 10 years old. I was tormented until I believed in him. And at that exact moment, I'll never forget it. I was on my mother's bedroom floor as a 10-year-old little boy. And I remember just all of a sudden, this, just this burden, this weight of my sin was just lifted off of my shoulders. And I was redeemed and I was born again. Earlier this week, my um, five-year-old Bryn had a Christmas play, whatever you want to call that thing. And she goes to a Christian school and for kindergarten. And in the midst of this play, my daughter, I think, was a donkey, uh, so that was cute. I never understood that until it became apparent, the, the cuteness of those things. But in the midst of this play, they shared the gospel. And they said this, that if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you will inherit eternal life. I was, like, stunned. I literally sat in the audience thinking to myself, that sounds a little weird to me, even though I say it literally every week. I was like, this is strange because it seems too easy. That I don't have to do anything to earn God's love. That it has been displayed on the cross, it has been demonstrated, it has been revealed to me. That all I have to do is believe in Jesus Christ and I shall be saved. That was a weird experience for me, even as a preacher who preaches the gospel literally every Sunday morning. So you know what? I just put myself in your shoes that day. That is, if you're, a, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, it probably sounds a little weird. That all you have to do to inherit eternal life is to trust in Him as your Lord and Savior. But it's true. It's true. You don't earn your way to heaven. You can't make your way to heaven. You can't be a good enough person to get to heaven. You can't do enough good works. You can't go to church enough times. You can't serve enough to become right before God. That is why God sent his only begotten son into the world to die as our propitiation, our satisfaction for our sin, so that our sin will be, 
will be paid for in full, and the satisfaction of God's desire for justice for sin would be met. If you have never believed in Jesus Christ, he gives you eternal life by faith. And the only sin that is unforgivable is the rejection of his son as your Lord and Savior. Will you believe in him as that? If you are lonely or sorrowful, receive the comfort of the Spirit. If you are a believer, walk by the Spirit in the clarity of his word. And if you are seeking God, believe in him and you shall be saved. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, there's a lot here. We could have spent three weeks just on this one passage. But the truth that we see for the disciples then is truth that we can have today. That there is no disconnect, even 2,000 years later. That if we are followers of you, that we can experience your comfort in times of need. And that if we are a believer, that we walk by the Spirit, we can understand your word and live according to it all the more. But Lord, the truth is also that if we are of the world, if we have never been redeemed, if we have never been born again, if we have never trusted in you as Savior, that the opportunity to believe is today. Lord, I pray for those that do not know you as Savior, that they would trust in you. That they would pray and come before your throne of grace and believe. Thank you for my church. I do pray for all those that are mourning and sorrowful. I pray for all those that have just experienced loss recently. I pray for comfort for them in this time. And I thank you for our church. Thank you for this family. That we can gather together and not worry about being entertained. But just have fellowship with one another. And want to apply your scripture. I thank you for this church. Thank you for all those tuning in online. And I lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen.